you see those fools at the back of the class They don't care about grades or if they fail or pass They ain't here to learn, they're just here for laughs The day you're home will just tear it in half If you want blood, you got it You trap a keeper, I'll on it Give me a crap, I'll blot it This ain't the tension, baby, this is the The audit is brought to you by The Lever, a reader-supported investigative news outlet. You can go to levernews.com to find all of their reporting. You can also subscribe to Lever News weekly news podcast, Lever Time, which is available on all major podcast players. If you'd like to support this show, head over to levernews.com slash audit to become a paid supporter. Basically, The Lever built its own version of Patreon, and they even cut out the middleman. And this is how it works. When you become a paid supporter, part of that money goes to the creative team at the audit, and part of that money goes to the lever. So not only are you supporting this show, but you'll be directly supporting the lever's independent journalism. Audit supporters will get expanded episodes of the audit and every single episode of the new series in advance, the day the first episode drops. On top of that, each of our supporters will also get access to the Lever's premium content, including their exclusive newsletters, private podcast feed, ebooks, and live events. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can find the audit's tip jar at levernews/audit and leave us a tip. Like this, this is almost like well, this could counter out Roe being over fucking yeah. Like this is bad, and they don't get it. Yeah, yeah. I just, oh man. I, I mean, this is coming from the president who stood in the living room of wealthy people and said, nothing will fundamentally change for you. He yeah. meant that. Yeah. Right? Yes, he did. He meant it. And what, what I don't get is how many people I have talked to and I have seen talking who are like, well, what do you expect them to do? I mean, the, the strike would destroy the economy. And you're like, so in your mind, okay, here are the two options you're seeing. One is the economy's crushed. Two is the workers have to take a deal they hate. You seriously telling me you can't imagine a third option there? Are you not? <laughs> they can't. Can you just think for a minute? There's one other party involved here. It, it doesn't even enter into their thinking that maybe he could muscle somebody else into taking a deal they don't like. And somebody else who option. could afford it. <laughs> there's a fourth option. Nationalize the railroad. done many times. Yeah, nationalize the by presidents. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this isn't hard. He's just a bad president. Ugh. <sighs> God, and, and it's just, it's so hard. I get it. You don't want to admit it. You know, it's like, I don't know, what is it? You, what is the analogy? You married, you've you, you been seeing someone for a while. All your friends are like, that's the worst person I've ever been in my life. I can't be your friend anymore if you keep dating that person. You're like, no, they're great. And then you marry them. And then you wake up and you're like, oh my God, this is a terrible person. But, but I can't admit that because then I have to call my friends up and apologize to them. Or something. Right. What is it? Why can't people just, they're politicians. What is the no, sense that you have it, to be loyal to them when they are not loyal to It is something wrong with us in America, really. Yeah. Yes. We're a cult. We're, you know, we're just a different version of North Korea. But we, we like cults. Capitalist cult. Yeah, we are. This isn't, yeah. this isn't capitalism. This is a cult. This that's is a it, That's bizarre... exactly what it is. 
weird. You know, somebody, I saw a tweet where somebody said, now y'all mad at Jerry Jones, and I get it, but what about Joe Biden? And they put up the caption of him saying he didn't want black kids to, he didn't want his kids going to a school that was a jungle. I don't know if you guys remember when he did that. That, that, yes. Yeah. So I said, well, point well taken. (laughs) Jerry Jones was 14. Joe Biden was well grown uh, when he made that comment. I got you. You're right. Yeah. Integrating black students would turn schools into a jungle, a racial jungle. Compliments of Joe Biden. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Woo. Hey guys, how you doing? Okay. How you been? <laughs> hey, it's been a week. <laughs> it, uh, it, uh, I don't know what it, I was talking to somebody today. It was like the, the, just all these things that are happening. That, the railway thing. There was an article Politico put up the other day. I sent it to Dave about, um, it's a woman who's in the CIA writing about the, uh, uh, subject nobody ever talks about, the emotional cost to CIA operatives uh, for what they do all over the world, how much it hurts them to overthrow democracy and chop off people's hands and, you know, at least have to be in the room while their associates do those things. And and it just, it just feels like every time you think this, everything's just, it just gets more insane. It just gets more, I don't know, this episode is going to drop in a few weeks, so we don't know. I have no idea what's going to happen with this railway it just it seems to me that like I don't know this could be an artifact from an interesting time because what do, what do you think of the odds let's you guys want to go to the record here in case this can come out and people can 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 check us is there a chance in hell that there's a wildcat strike no is this that moment you don't think so you think no, people are just going to leave they can't quit. afford to go to jail they can't quit. afford to go to jail but I mean the ones who, who can, can go to jail right but if they all do that doesn't happen that's not what they should do. What in should they do? Australia, this just happened like a, a few years ago, and it wasn't it wasn't the um, the rail trains; it was the uh, passenger trains. So all of the uh, all of the guys that worked on the trains just stopped taking money from people. There's ways to do it. Mm. <laughs> you know, you can slow everything More down trucks. to a trickle yeah. and go. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. We're trying really hard. Yep. You can grind everything to a halt and just go, yeah, we're not on a strike. We're working because that's yep. the option that's been put on the table. So yeah. do it. Yeah. Take it. Yeah. 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 It's going to be bad. Um, well, we're going to do something different for this, this final episode. We've, we've finished up all the instructive portions of these classes. We now, I would say we all know now how to run a presidential campaign, right? Huh? Like I could yeah, I actually kind of... uh, helped to run one. So, yeah. <laughs> I was like, uh, uh, Nina, how, how, Sarah, before we get into this, this summing up thing, literally, is there anything, and I don't think this is a fair criticism of this class, considering who you are and what you've done, but did, is there anything here that made you even for an instant go, oh, like, I didn't think of that? No, but it's, Nothing? it is unfair to ask me that because. Yeah, I've no, exactly. Because you've done been it. Been in the belly of it, yeah. both, at, you know, on presidential, but on other levels yeah. too. I will say that there were some things that, they emphasized that had me saying, yep, that's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. Or it made me remember certain things on the various campaigns that I've been on. So I wouldn't say it was a total, it it wasn't a total waste, but it means this this masterclass is, is more 
geared towards people who've never been involved in campaigns before. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. For sure. I mean, I, I would have been surprised if you had walked out of going, damn, I wish we had done that on the... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. did, did, was, were either of you surprised by anything you saw from... And I don't mean like details. I mean, just like what you saw of who they are, of, of Axelrod or Rove. I mean, I, I have some thoughts, but I wanted to hear what you... Uh, no, I... They were exactly kind of what I thought they'd be. I think, I think Carl Rove is an evil genius, and I think Axelrod is a guy who got really lucky and found a once-in-a-lifetime candidate. And I don't think he really knows that much more than anybody else. I think Carl Rove, if you're willing to uh, use those sort of tactics. He's a great guy to have. I think Axelrod just sounds like you could replace him with any other banana. And yeah. <laughs> Nina, did you, I mean, you've probably, you've at least been in rooms in the vicinity of these gentlemen, I would have to imagine. I mean, were there any surprises as to who they were for you? No, not at all. And even, I think, something that we brought up last time when we were together, which is the friendship. And it was very clear. What this master class did reveal is just how strong of a relationship that they have with one another, so much so that Axelrod did not, you know, point out any of the he, he didn't go sideways a role at all. It was adoringly. I mean he was he adored the stories about the Republicans. He told many of them him, himself. So no. Yeah, no, I was there is one that. moment in this thing where they sort of they they uh, Rove gets a little testy with something Axelrod says. It's fun, and we'll get to it. But yeah, I guess for me it was like I'd never given Axelrod that much thought. Um, you know, you yeah. you pay attention to these characters when they sort of emerge. I, mean, I do. I mean, obviously, I'm not in the in the world that you are. But um, you know, Rove obviously we're very familiar with, and I was not particularly surprised with him, especially after doing the George W. Bush class. Axelrod, I thought, okay, and I'm finally paying attention to this guy. And yeah, like Dave said, I'm genuinely surprised that, um, uh, I wonder if anyone's talking to him about this. I wonder if he shows this to any of his friends. I wonder if he's embarrassed by it. Because I think the clear impression I get out of this is, boy, did you get lucky. <laughs> that's that's yeah. just it. Yeah. Um, Karl Rove put a legitimate idiot war criminal in office. Uh, in spite of the odds, and Axelrod just happened to walk into a room when a once-in-a-lifetime miraculous candidate decided he's going to run for president, it seems like. Um, you, you know the saying, it's better to be lucky. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. That's right. I try to be both. I try to be both. The uh, the um, <laughs> So the last chapter of this thing is the two of them discussing the current state of American politics, and it's interesting for a lot of reasons. And I thought it would be fun to, instead of pulling a clipper here, or there is just kind of walk through the whole thing and stop anytime anything leapt out at us. So uh, if you guys are ready, we're going to kick this off, shall we? Yes, we yes. shall. How did we get from President Obama, who was a unifier, to Donald Trump, who's the divider? because a lot of people thought that during those eight years that they weren't being listened to, maybe longer than eight years. They thought, you know what? The coast seemed to be doing good, but I don't seem to be doing good. It seems that they're paying attention to the people in academia and people in the foundations and smart people in Washington, but they're not paying attention to me. And enough of those people were around 
that when it came down to an election, think about 32% of the people in 2016 in the exit polls thought the country was going in the right direction, and they voted for Hillary Clinton by 89 to 8. But nearly two-thirds thought the country was seriously off on the wrong track, and that was enough to give Donald Trump the victory, including like, you know, 40,000 people in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and 11,000 people yeah. in... 80,000 votes. 80,000 votes total the in, the, in the three states of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. What you say is absolutely true. This was a change election. Donald Trump was the uh, the most authentic agent of change, whatever you think of the changes. And he spoke to those uh, voters in a very vivid uh, way. We That part right there, yeah. Yeah, Donald Trump in that general election was the most authentic, he didn't say symbol, but the most authentic symbol of change. That is absolutely true because Donald Trump came off as a populist. So we know that he's a faux populist, but that the the populist language was there. He talked about the rotten trade deals. He talked about draining the swamp. You know, all of the things that uh, people needed to hear at that time because neoliberalism actually you know, brought to you by, you know, you hear it brought to you by, well, Neil, uh, Donald J. Trump brought to you by neoliberalism. Neoliberalism, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. what's interesting to me is, is seeing Axelrod just sort of so openly acknowledge that. And I wonder if some of that is just some... But I... Don't you think he misunderstands it, though? Like, to him, he thinks... Uh, well, it's the same thing as Obama. He, Obama, he was more, you know, sort of uh, able to talk to the people and, and unique. I don't think he, I don't think he sees the neoliberal part of that. I think he sees no, that sure. as, yeah. well, that's his performance. He doesn't see the bigger picture at all. He doesn't look around and go, well, yeah, he was talking about NAFTA and all these other things. And he doesn't look at England and go, same thing there, or Italy and go, same thing there, or France and go, it's happening there. He doesn't see that neoliberalism is a massive failure. He just sees like, yes. well, that guy could talk to the people better. That's all he sees. Yeah, yeah. but he, he's still it's seeing a, a certain that, that that the populist message is getting through this year, I mean, at least. Um, but yeah, you're right. There's no interrogation of why that is per se. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm just constantly as I watch this whole thing, I'm sort of always amazed that there's some moments where he really doesn't, but where Karl Rove just, and I wonder if this is something that runs through the party. Uh, it seems like it does. They seem more malevolently intelligent than Democrats, where Republicans just get what's going on, which is well, why they can't guys, as a... Yeah. This seems like of mice and men here. That's that's what it looks like to me. I mean, <laughs> you know, that guy just oh, wants wow. a puppy to pet. Like, I, I just think these are two people living in completely different, you know, spheres. Yeah. David Axelrod going, <laughs> tell me about the swing votes, Carl. Tell me about the swing votes. <laughs> Some yell a mess. Be cyclical in our judgments. Mm-hmm. I always say there's a replica and a remedy. Uh, and, no, and voters rarely choose the replica yeah. of what they have. Donald Trump was the anti-Obama in every way, in his style, in his approach. Uh, he wasn't interested in nuance. He wasn't interested in complexity. He wasn't interested in rules. It, he, his basic message was, I'll take care of it. Let me take care of it. Trust me, and I'll take care of yeah. it. And yeah, you're right. He's he's just talking about this in these very surface terms, where it's like, oh, people just want the opposite of what they had last time. Yeah, yeah. With, with no reflection as to the actual conditions that that uh, go into those votes. It's that's like, right. Oh, he's not Obama. I'll vote for that now. Because that's what we are. Not, We're just these. 
yeah, we're these binary idiots who just have to swing back and forth constantly without any introspection at all in his mind. Yeah, they, they're not taking in it, like you talk about, you know, Wisconsin and those states, and it's like, yeah, more factories still close. Like, it's still it's still an ongoing process. I, I think when Obama got out of office, I think it was 120,000 um, factories that had closed since 2000. Mm-hmm. It's an ongoing process. Like, it's like it's like the colonization of america it's sort of in a way like they're just ripping through things and destroying lives of you know these people and they yeah. don't there's just no concept of that to them they're just like that's why trump rose up he people needed to hear let's let's break it all down and start over that's it's right. not working i mean they don't have any concept that it's not working they think their lives are great so it's fine but it's not there's nothing working here well, their lives are great, and it's very clear yeah. that they are having this masterclass solely through that lens. You know, yeah. the 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 needs of the people doesn't even, doesn't even cross their minds that this really was a revolt against the status quo, and Donald Trump was the conduit for the pain that people were feeling. Now he was the wrong conduit, no doubt about it, but he was a conduit nevertheless. And there are no lessons to be learned. I mean, they neoliberals, the the people who control the Democratic Party and all the apparatus of that party, have not learned that lesson. They do not see this. You know, there. We were talking about you know before we started recording the the what's, what just happened to the railroad workers. And uh, somebody sent me a, a tweet of a worker that said that they wanted to see Donald Trump impeached for everything that he did. They had a flag outside their home saying such for like three years and now because of the betrayal by joe biden again a conduit for neoliberalism that they're no longer going to vote for him they they will vote for trump this is what they said we will vote for trump over joe biden see this is in lies the problem yeah yes that's it but they don't get that can't acknowledge any of that because his guy was the guy who was presiding over that for eight years and that would mean yeah Acknowledging that it yeah, that would mean he, he screwed up. up. Yeah, you know the thing about NAFTA and the thing about what Biden just did. Dog dogs barking. Can you hear that? <laughs> yep. There, it's a delay, Sorry. man. It'll go away. <laughs> we <laughs> have sound effects. Nina, I have a herd of dogs. <laughs> <laughs> he does. <laughs> um, so. Uh, so NAFTA, they didn't necessarily jump ship. They just didn't vote. And that's what this will do. It's not necessarily like, sure, there are going to be some they're going to say, I'm going to vote for that. But there's just there's just a bunch of people that just go, I'm out. And that's that's the same way you lose an election is having them switch sides. You you have more Democratic voters in this country, more left leaning people, but they don't vote because you suck. That's like right. this is just betrayal. This is they've been the party of betrayal for so many years now. Since Clinton came into office in ninety four, they have been the party of betrayal. It's not it's it's way different than being the party of corporate people. The party of betrayal is worse because people know you're supposed to be doing the right thing and you're not. So it's worse. That when there's an alcoholic dad and a non-alcoholic mom and the mom lets the dad abuse the kids, the kids are always more mad at the mom. That's just a psychological thing. 
Yeah. It always happens. So they carry true. rage to the, the, the parent that didn't protect them from the one that was beating them. It's yeah. very common. And that's just the kind of thing that's going on here. Yeah. Um, also, I'm just thinking, they, 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 I just started saying that the Democrats are working towards making South Carolina now the first primary. Which yes. seems to be another way to kind of um, build a wall against the left. Um, that's right. Yes. I mean, they're just, they're just, uh, they're conscious that's of what they're, they're doing. doing. That's what, yeah, yes. it's it's the part where they're just going about the business of losing elections that I don't understand. But that's, I mean, the corporate <laughs> Democrats—that's who they want to win. But South Carolina, I mean, what Democrat ultimately wins South Carolina? Nobody. It's stupid. Yeah, yeah exactly. So they yeah, want to increase makes the it... chances of the corporate wing of the Democratic Party. That's all this is about. Yeah. 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 It's really dumb. It's like you're doing it in a state that nobody ever wins as a Democrat. It's just. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. But yeah, it's, it's who that, they it's are. Like we, it's, we, need to, we need to try to be more like Republicans. I mean, just the body language. I wish we were a video show here because it's these two guys in a room and it goes to that. It's just like Axelrod's always sort of leaning in and he's got this kind of conciliatory look and he's he's always just kind of like, wow, golly gee whiz. And, and Rove's just kind of sitting back and it's almost like he's like throwing bones to a puppy. I mean, it's just you can just see the power dynamic in this room just by looking at these two. And that's something our listeners are going to lose out on. But... Let's let's keep going. And, uh, and and there was enough of a market for that to win that election. Well, elections are never about just one candidate either. And the Democrats worked very hard at nominating the one person in America whom Donald Trump could beat. And, and don't they did. Well, I'll say this. If you if it's a change election, uh, then someone whose calling card is experience in Washington is not necessarily going to be the answer. Particularly if they don't have an, an explanation of what that experience will lead them to do. The thing that was missing in her campaign is the thing that you so rightly point out is what is the message? What is it that they want to do in office? And other than, quote, break the glass ceiling, which, right. was, which was not a powerful enough message, particularly among women who were hoping for somebody to break the glass ceiling, but they wanted to, to break the glass ceiling for a good purpose other than just breaking the glass. Yeah. Well, look, uh, if Says a campaign... Says Carl Rove, because he knows. Hmm. He knows what the women wanted. Hey, but he seems to be more in touch with that than a lot of Democrats were. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm not... Yeah, I mean, him. that is true, what he said. And so this, this assumption... This is another example of how neoliberals or corporate-type Democrats don't get it. They use identity just for the sake of using identity. There's no subs. They're not using identity to really solve deep-rooted conundrums, systemic problems. They're using it for their own edification and nothing more. And people see yeah. right through that. Like, I don't want every woman to win. That means that what? I'm supposed to be for Sarah Palin? Right. You know? I'm supposed to be for Carrie Lake? Right. I mean, if it's just or, about wearing a skirt or a pantsuit, or our, uh, or our <laughs> new, uh, our new, our new rep of uh, of the House of Representatives, our new uh, speaker uh, guy there. What's his name? Uh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. Hakeem Jeffrey. Hakeem. Well, there's a that guy's like that guy was like shot out of hedge funds. Like he, oh, he's yeah. he's like he represents hedge fund. How do you think that's going to go for America? Like, but that's it. Now they can say, look, we got a we got a person of color up here. And you're like, yeah, but that guy's harming everybody. Right. So, yeah. But, yeah, but the, the Republicans but are happy. I mean, it. watching Karl Rove here, they just they understand exactly how cynical that is and how empty it is. 
Um, I can't remember if we've talked about it here, Nina, but I've, I've, I've said for years now, I believe that the first black woman president will be a Republican. Yes. I, mean, yes. I think they will They will do no, that. Absolutely. Wow. Right? No offense. Absolutely do it. We're still going yep. to work for you whenever you decide. Yeah. But <clears throat> um, I, th- no, I, I, think, I 100% I think, agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I think they'll do it. They'll do that on purpose because because it yes. will befuddle the hell out of Democrats. Like, what what do we do? Because if they go after her too yep. hard, it means they have to dismantle their entire thinking about this stuff and, and start being yeah. a little more honest. The facade about it. that they put up all these years. It, one of the yeah. tests, and this wow, is what that's... I would say to all the folks who are uh, watching us now. One of the tests of a campaign that has problems is if it has multiple slogans. If you if you have nine slogans during the course of a campaign, likely you're not going to win because what it means is that you're changing your message, you're changing your approach, that there's no constancy to it, there's no authenticity. In the 2016 debates, I think one of the advantages that Trump gained unintentionally was that Hillary didn't understand the less you talked about being a woman, the better off she was. It was like President Obama. He didn't go out there and say, hey, vote for me. I'm going to be the first African-American president of the United States. He let it simply be seen in his conduct. This is a man worthy of the highest office in the land. And oh, wouldn't it be great for our country as an expression of how far we've come if he were elected? She, she instead sort of poked people about the issue. And I think it was one of the reasons why at the end the people said, wait a minute, is that all you're going to give me? And particularly if you're, you know, sort of a centrist, somewhat conservative leaning, but still available to vote for a Democrat woman, you said, I'm not going with it. I want change. That's more important for me than breaking the glass ceiling. So if she had accentuated change, I'm going to be a different kind of a president and here are the things that I'm going to do and left unspoken. Oh, incidentally, I'm going to be the first woman to be elected chief executive of the United States, I think she would have been better off in the debate. Yeah, Nina's yeah, he, sitting here nodding her head. Yeah, no, he's, he's, he's right good. about that. Because I'm, I, I'm with Hillary, whatever the slogan was. Right, first of all, I'm with did, her. She did, I'm with her. They did and change the And the arrow pointed to the right. <laughs> to, <laughs> hey, at least they told the truth about the arrow. Yeah. But the more she made it about her... And not about the needs, the dreams, the desires, the hopes, the fears of the people of this country. Then people, everyday people, you know, working class people are saying, well, damn it, if it's about her, then it can't be about me. And so I'm not voting for her because it ain't about me. And we had a very simple slogan. It's not, it's not me, it's us. Yes. You know, this, this is about us. But there's also... Aside from all the, the kind of gender stuff, too, it, it, it kind of hit me really easily. One of the problems also in making it about you, the candidate, is now you're stressing the fact, and I know a lot of people vote based on this anyway, but you're, you're stressing the fact that I need to like you, not just what you're running on. That's I'm fair. sorry, I know a lot of people, and I'm, sh- I'm sure, you know, listen, you can tell me I'm wrong. I've, I've been around a lot of, uh, Bernie is a familiar character to me just in terms of sort of the 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 type of character he is and they can they can be fun to hang around with for a while but they can be exhausting man i was never there was never a part where i was like oh i like him personally i was never once it never occurred to me to root for bernie's personal success i don't give a shit but if you're going to make it about that you're making me have to go okay well why am i invested in you aside do you believe in anything i believe in do i like you 
And it's like, it, you're, you're now counting on everyone to find you really likable. And, um, Oh, well, there's, there's a problem we had, you know, that's one thing that I'll bring up is these are the two most unlikable candidates since we started taking those polls of who's likable in like the eighties. Like, yeah, I think it was the first time in history that more people voted candidates. against each candidate than four yeah. of them. And they uh, act like that's yeah. not a thing here, but that's a massive. Yeah. Thing. And it needs to be addressed because, um, it's a problem. <laughs> it's a real problem. Because uh, you end up with a minority candidate like like Trump, who's you know beloved by a minority and despised by a majority, and then you have a party ramming a sincerely disliked candidate down the throat of everybody else. Yeah, I mean it. It in retrospect, that election seems like a gimme. It was like here's the here's the candidate that the people chose over on the right, and here's the candidate that was chosen for the people on the left, and now we're going to let them run out in the play box and look who lost. Yeah, but it's interesting to hear these guys talk about it because it feels like like Rove is just sitting there knowing this is the case. And he's an anti-Trumper, which is interesting. But he's very sort of cold and clinical. And Axelrod just, again, kind of hangdog having to sort of acknowledge these truths without looking too much into um, his party's responsibility for creating these situations. He's still, he's still clinging to the idea that it's just about candidates. It's just about optics. Um, it's not about people looking at their lives and voting for, you know their own self-interest. Times are changing. You know, when she began in politics, I think that there was the sort of Maggie Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher rule that, uh, you know, people didn't see women as uh, strong and competent enough to hold these executive positions, so you needed to overcompensate uh, for that. And last point on the two thousand. I, I think he's right there. I think he's got a point. I think there is an age thing going on where... I think with a younger woman candidate, they grew up in a time where that's just not drummed into your head the same way. It's like I, I remember talking to friends about how, you know, no, you don't understand. It's really important. Like young young girls need to see a woman in the White House to know they can do that, too. And then and then I'm talking to my teenage niece and they're like, I know I can do that. But Hillary Clinton grew up in a time when that was not something that a young girl could take for granted. You know, and, and I think some of that is common. Some of that is her not changing with the times, which goes to another favorite of Dave's in mind that like maybe old people should stop running for the highest offices in the land. With with one or two exceptions, by the way. <laughs> well, but we, it's a bit we of a gerontocracy. We shouldn't we shouldn't need uh, Bernie to run. We should have many other people who could run. One of the problems with the Democratic Party is they. Um, they they get rid of those people. They they push them out. They crush them. Um, there's a reason the leadership of the Democratic Party has been crazy old people for so long is because they're not giving space to anybody else. Oh, that's no, their they, job to get the hell out of right. the way. They they blocking blocking and tackling baby. Don't even try it. I mean, you see Clyburn just won a seat back within the leadership of the of the caucus i mean that guy of the congress and it's, you you got to scratch your head like how in the hell did he get elected first of all why is he running for that leadership position again that's yeah. number one i mean it, at a certain point it just becomes about you and it's selfish and that's what we're dealing with and that is really the revelation of the of the hillary clinton's campaign as well at a point, it was really all, it's always been about her, and it, it was it was a very selfish, and, and that's why it, she didn't, you know, the American people 
did not, absolutely did not want her. They didn't want her in 2008, and they did not want her in 2016, and they said it two times. Both times. We, we don't want you. Yeah. What do you do about that, though? What do you do about people like, I mean, there, there's the, I know a lot of people sort of knee-jerk responses, like, well, we need term limits. You're like, yeah, now you're ensuring that everyone in the government is just wealthy. I mean, there's, there's, no, <laughs> yeah. there's no upside to that. So. Right, the power is going somewhere. It's either going to go to the bureaucrats yeah. or to an elected, as much as it pains us and hard as it is to beat an incumbent, at least the power theoretically is in the hands of the people. People don't know. Nature abhors a vacuum. That power, so you think, so in Ohio, let me use Ohio for an example. I mean, they, people, groups of people fought for term limits. They were really mad at the federal level, but they fought for term limits here in the state of Ohio. Now you have some of those people who were the leaders of the initiative to put term limits on members of the legislature in Ohio who regret it because now the lobbyists and the bureaucrats have all the power or most of the power and the electeds have very little because that turnover is so much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so that, that's a problem, but how do you, what do you do about a problem like Clyburn and somebody? Because obviously the longer you're in, the more you're capable of, the more power you've amassed, um, the more you're able to do what he's doing. And, and, you know, he's a problem. A lot of the Nancy Pelosi's a problem. He's, I, I, I mean, there is something to longevity, but at, but at a point, you overdoing that longevity. I mean, even Dr. King said longevity has its place. Now, if we could dissect what he said, has its place. He didn't say it had to be forever, but it has its place. And there does need to be some type of historic knowledge about what happened before you got there which is why you do need some people in both legislatures and also in the Congress who understand how the puzzle pieces fit. But at a certain point, you need somebody else to come in there and you can show them and teach them how the puzzle pieces fit and let them take it the next leg. Yeah, when you absolute power corrupts, absolutely. So Josh, this is a long way for me to go to at a certain point we are looking at absolute power corrupting absolutely and that is what we see with a Clyburn with a Pelosi you know all this insider trading let's use that for an example they don't give they enrich themselves and their families meanwhile big mama and big papa they don't have no insider trading opportunities Mm -hmm. but members of Congress people who work on Wall Street who are not allowed their stock market analysts are not allowed to invest their families can't it's like there are regulations in place that are really simple everyone understands that they work yes we we know how to take care of this problem you just apply it to to elected representatives but to do that elected representatives have to vote right for that I mean the corruption yeah 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 and and I think I mean if you think about the framers they never imagined people staying in office this long. This is not how it was meant to be at the beginning. And now I got my qualms with many of the framers. Now, don't get me wrong. But on this point, they never envisioned people being in these seats this long. Well, nobody lived that long back then. Well, that's true. That's true, too. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Mother Nature took care of it real quick. Yeah. <laughs> if you were 50 and you were a great-grandparent, man, you were doing something wrong. That is true. Hey there, it's David Sirota, host of Lever Time, the flagship podcast from the award-winning investigative news outlet, The Lever. In politics, there's a complex web of money, influence, and greed that corrupts our democracy. 
LeverTime is an unflinching examination of the latest news, events, and issues that often go unrecognized and unreported by corporate media. We interview a variety of guests and experts across media and politics, and we hold the powerful accountable. Some recent interviews include Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, comedian David Cross, progressive leader Nina Turner, and artificial intelligence expert Dr. Max Tegmark. So if you're looking for a true independent voice in political media, check out Levertime. Go to levertimepod.com or search Levertime on your podcast player to subscribe. There's an element of race in our politics, and it's been coursing through our politics since the beginning. And uh, Donald Trump uh, was willing to go where, where other candidates didn't. There were elements of his campaign that we had heard before, echoes of George Wallace, echoes of, of, of uh, the Nixon campaign in, in 68. And he stirred up uh, a reaction that redounded. He traded votes. He traded some of those suburban Republicans who were uncomfortable with that uh, position, gambled that most of them would stay because he was wearing the red jersey. And he uh, excited the base uh, in other parts of the country enough to uh, to carry the states that you mentioned. Yeah, well, I'd have a slightly different view, which is if you look at it, where he did well and won the election were by taking counties that had voted for Barack Obama once or twice. 200 of them, yeah. And, and shifting them into the Republican column. And remember, he gets about the same percentage of the African-American vote and the same percentage of the Hispanic vote as Mitt Romney did. In fact, he runs ahead of Mitt Romney's performance among Latinos. So this is all an interesting one to me because obviously Trump did trade in. Um, I mean, more subtly then than now, but but I mean, you know, it, it was it was he was more overtly friendly to white supremacists than anybody I've seen running for a major party in, in my adult life. Um, and that made it easy, I think, for a lot of people to just sort of ignore everything else he was doing to to their detriment. But I don't know. I was interested in your response to this, Nina, because it's like they're, they, I feel like they're both sort of telling the truth here, and and the truth really lies in the middle. But it was always fascinating to me, um, as much as I tried to be clear-eyed about this. Those, those Obama view voters who went to Trump uh, were were startling to me at first. Um, what, what's what's your thought about that and about him and the extent to which he plays to that audience? And I don't know. It goes back to the to the change. Thing. I mean, President Obama ran on hope and change. Trump didn't run necessarily, well, at all on hope and change, but he did run. There was on no change. hope. Uh, yeah. There was no hope. <laughs> no hope. And definitely no change, but he ran on, I'm going to drain the swamp. And so even if they're totally polar opposites, there is something attractive about a person who comes in and tells you the truth. Although he's lying. I mean, it's kind of, he, he is a liar, but he told the truth about the failures of the system. And he lied about being the person to fix it. And I think people are attracted to that. And, and then he had the strong man persona too. And when Axelrod says that there's an element of race in our politics, no shit Sherlock. <laughs> Trump ain't the only one. You know, I'm thinking to myself, that is not a revelation. There is an element. No, race is all up in the politics. Are you kidding yeah. me? And it's not just Trump, and that's what troubles me I, so I much. I think he's about afraid Neil. of offending his friend. I mean, I really do. I think he's sitting there with a guy who's, you know, let, let's face it, it's like the Republican Party is is, is a white super, an overtly white supremacist party, and he knows that, and he's afraid to go all in. 
he'll happily sit around with a bunch of his Democratic friends and talk about him. But he's sitting there with Karl Rove, and he doesn't want to offend him too much by telling him the yeah. truth about his own party. God but I, I want to say, and I know Dave wants to jump in here, it's not even, from my vantage point, it's not just even the Republican Party. You said something earlier, Josh, about overtly, that Trump was mm-hmm. overtly. We got a lot of coverts. Yes. Covert. Yeah, for sure. People who move sure. covertly in both of these parties. So, no, well, the element is the main, it's essential to politics. But it's much is. easier to explain to a liberal why Donald Trump is a white supremacist than why, you know, take your pick over on the Democratic side. Because it's, I mean, he's literally like last week sitting down with Nazis at dinner, you know. Um, and, and there is a kind of, it's also fascinating, there is a sense among a lot of white liberals especially that when you talk about racism, uh, racists are people who, um, you know, they have layers underneath their house where they have the giant map of America with all the lights on it, like out of something of the James Bond movie, with either a swastika on the floor or, you know, a burning cross or something. And they don't understand the more pernicious and kind of day-to-day aspects of that. So if you have someone like Donald Trump saying there's good people on both sides, you know, after what happened when, when you know, a, a white supremacist ran over that woman, um, it's a lot easier to go, see, see, they're the racists. I mean, it's easier for them to cope yeah. with it. That's yes. all that is. That's yeah. just a coping mechanism. But if you go talk to anybody that's been on the other side that had to bear the brunt of racism and anti-blackness. So this, the entire makeup of the, we are complicit as a nation. So Trump is easier to deal with because it's in your face, but they don't want to deal with the covert nature of systemic racism and anti-blackness and how that system works to crush generationally the most mm-hmm. marginalized people in this country. And it started with the founding of this nation. So when this man says elements, mm-hmm. he has the luxury to say elements. And for anybody who sees Trump, which a lot of liberals, as you just said, see the liberals, because look look over there so you don't have to look over here. Look right. over there so so you're not reminded that Biden uh, helped to, to, to draft the crime bill. Look over there so you don't have to be reminded that he said that if black children were bused to, to schools with white children, that it'd be a jungle. He didn't want his kids going to a, a jungle. So look there. Yeah. What's the difference between Biden saying that and Trump saying that? It's all in how it's presented. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. It's I mean, acceptable. One of, fl- one of them is waving a red flag and the other is wearing, you know, socks made out of that flag. And it's a right. Lot I mean, it's the difference between the wearing, the, wearing the white sheet or wearing a blue suit over the white sheet. That's what yeah. the difference is. Yeah. If you want yeah. to see the racism in the Democratic Party, just go back to the 2008 campaign. Hello, somebody. Hillary Clinton and her campaign could not have been more disgusting and racist. That's it. Um, you know. So they're yeah, they are uh, a different variety of racism. I think that. You know, we're just in a place where it's like when you're dealing with. It's funny. I, 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 a, f- a friendship. I had a friendship end over uh, a buddy of mine putting up a, a picture of Joe Strummer before the 2016 election. It said, vote the fascists out and vote for Biden. And I said, I said, uh, well, that's fascism to some people. I, and, he, and someone sits at my house and he said, where's their fascism? I go, I think if you're not white, 
in America, you're dealing with something pretty close to fascism all the time. And then he stopped talking to me. Yes. And the reason he stopped talking to me is because I was right. <laughs> That's but right. that's that's the reality of it. I'm a white guy. I don't live in anything. I I I I always bring this up. And I was talking to my friend about this from high school last night. We were just talking about all the shit we did, and I just stopped in the middle. And I said, "Dude, if we were black," and he said, "Yeah, we both would have been in jail. A hundred fucking percent, I would have been in jail. As would my friend. A hundred percent, we would have been in jail. And that's 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 the difference. That's the life I don't have to live." Yeah. yeah, I can't remember who it was. It's, it's become such a running joke about 10 years ago, the New York Times. It wasn't Trayvon. It was somebody else. It was some young black kid who'd been murdered. And the New York Times portrayal of him, you know, they would you throw on the word thug and everything, even though he's clearly the victim here. And I, remember was, I can't remember which one, and it's when I canceled my subscription to the New York Times. But I, I wrote a thing where I sort of went through the list of things I had done by the time I was that kid's age that would have qualified me as a thug. And yeah. it, it was chilling. Some of them I left off because I wasn't sure. I could, <laughs> you <know? Yeah. laughs> it's like, it's just, just, you know, we're kids. We're doing, and, and yeah, yeah. I carried, I for six months, I think, I carried a duffel bag, not a huge duffel bag. It was a small duffel bag. Maybe a, maybe a, a like a, you put your, your gym clothes in uh, with drugs in them to school and sold them uh, come on nobody ever stopped me or looked at me or looked twice or even thought about it it was the easiest thing in the world to do i mean that story dave reminds me of the one that ben cohen you know one of the co-founders of ben and jerry's tells all the time and he says exactly what you said if i were black i probably would not have been able to be a co-founder of ben and jerry's because him and his mm -hmm. friends were smoking pot and they got caught by the police and but the police did not arrest them or lock them up or any of that. They got a ticket for littering. Yeah. And he said, had I been black, I would have went to jail. And Ben yeah. and Jerry's might not exist today. Yeah, that's yeah, that's right. I mean, we just live different lives. We get to live different lives. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, I do. I, I'm, I'm certainly not defending him. I really do. I, and I think this actually makes it worse. I think Axelrod is playing it down because he does not want to offend Karl Rove. And that, I that think is insane. Right. I think when you find yourself in that room with that person, you call them a friend and you don't want to speak to them honestly about the organization that they are a keen player in. <laughs> it's just yeah. that's that should be a problem. You should go home at night and you should be thinking about your relationship and what you actually believe in. I mean, there he's sitting across from a guy who manufactured, helped manufacture the stealing of the election in 2004 by suppressing um, the black vote in Ohio in extraordinary ways. There's a movie about it. Oh, uh, yeah. A documentary. Called No Umbrella. Called what happened at, okay, there you go. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, this is a guy, he's sitting across from a guy who used pure racism to steal an election and they're just hanging out talking about elections but he's being genuine to that and that's why i know in this conversation i keep bringing that up but i'm, I'm telling you as we watch this and i wish that the people who are going to be listening to us talk about this could see this there is a fondness i mean we all three of us touch, yeah. have touched on that that is not what he came to do. And so we must reconcile ourselves to that understanding that, that he yeah. didn't come in there to challenge. 
he came in there to co-sign. Right. There's a difference. Even that, even if you're not going to change it. I wonder if he went home at all during any of the shooting of this and just went, what's wrong with me? (laughs) (laughs) I doubt it. I'm not certain I see it as explicitly race. I think he was the angry candidate. That could be a reflection of whether uh, the Democratic candidate uh, was. You're not sure if you would call that explicitly racist because you're a white man. What the hell? (laughs) I just want to bang my head up against a wall right here in my house right now. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Oh, my God. I always wonder if, like, somebody on the crew of these things. I, I, I get this way about the stupidest thing. I'm, like, watching some old TV show, and, um, you know, some character will, like, mispronounce a word that the character should know. I'm like, wasn't there anybody on the set who could just go, um, yeah, no, it's Albert Camus, not Camus, you idiot. I did. There was a TV show. I, I see it's a, a guy's an English professor, a literature professor, and he keeps talking about Albert Camus. It made me crazy. But, but you're like, is there anybody on the crew of this who's just gone... At the very least, just like fuck it, I quit. <laughs> a strong enough candidate with the people those can't afford to quit. And right she was, and she was because yeah. the percentage, the percentage of African Americans and percentage of Latinos and percentage of Millennials who voted in 2016 is lower than the coalition that Barack Obama was able to put together in 2008. But he did speak to the you know whatever whether it was race or other elements. I think it was a combination of things. He did speak to those, and you're right. Those are counties that went strongly for Obama, who went for Trump. That was around economics. And there were other elements to his message as well in small town and rural uh, America. The lesson here, I think, for presidential candidates is don't write off, you, you can't write off communities and assume that because young people and women and minorities are an ascendant group in our electorate yeah. that you're going to carry the day. It's not good uh, strategy, and it's also not good strategy for governance if you win. Elections occur between two individuals at a precise period in time. And Hillary Clinton was the candidate of status quo because she never articulated what the change would be under her. And Donald Trump was, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a brick and- Ho, ho, Never, she did the opposite. Do you remember the hats? The hats that came out of the DNC, America is still America is already great. great. (laughs) America is all like that's the opposite of saying there will be change. Went hard the other way. Yeah, and that was trying to be clever. Trying to be clever. Yeah, and and playing to people you already had. Yeah, playing to people you already had. That's not going to play with people who who are leaning towards Trump because they're leaning towards Trump because America isn't great for them right. telling them it's already great. You're like, I don't know, which is worse, doing that or calling them deplorables? I'm not sure. But both equally I, which, bad. Yeah, as, as long as I'm here, Senator Turner, let me ask you your position as a politician. Uh, have, have you ever, when running for office, um, just insulted a huge chunk of your opponent's electorate there of their voters? <laughs> have you just called their supporters morons or assholes or... Thought about it, it probably. It, it, <laughs> well, definitely yeah. thought about it. But but you know, if 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 I went that route, then surely I would not expect them to vote for me. I mean, surely yeah. if that's the path that's I was right. gonna take. And and just again, that that arrogance that 
you just gonna call these people out like that and think they're gonna start they're gonna run to you no they're running away from you because you just said that they that basically they are not worthy that's what mm-hmm. you said to them when you call these people deplorables they they're dumb they're stupid they can't think then no hell no i'm not voting for you that's just like well, I won't say that. But no, I've never, Josh, no. I've never God. insulted <laughs> voters that didn't align with me and expected them to vote for me. Yeah, I, I can't. That that was a jaw-dropping moment. It, and, it really was. And the was. way people cheered it. And it was like, it, it, that, that one really reinforced for me the fact that so many people, yeah. it's on both sides, on all sides, don't understand that the point when your candidate is out there is that if they're just talking to you, if they're just firing you up and no one else, they're going to lose. The That's point is it. to reach people who don't agree with you. That's right. And you know what? It breeds resentment, too. I can't tell you how many people I talked to yeah. who resented her for saying that about them. Yeah. There were a lot of people with living yeah. in, the, in the basement because they couldn't afford to live anywhere else. So definitely, yeah. it breeds resentment. I mean, the problem is, is that the Democratic Party has been become the party of lanyard wearers and... And That's the professional it. class. I mean, Listen Liberal covers it very well. It's a great book yes, that you should read. Very good book. But, uh, you know, that's the problem. That's the base. And that's a very small base. And that's a problem. That is. Remember when Senator Sanders got criticized for going on Fox and doing that town hall? And oh, then God. when yes. the stats yeah. came out to show that it was one yeah. of the most watched events on Fox, then the other neoliberals, hey, sign me up. I want to go, too. But what Senator Sanders was able to do in that room, to our point about, I don't have to necessarily agree with you, voter A, B, C, or D, as much as I need to try to seek to understand you and to get you to understand me. Stephen Covey, you know, one of the great leadership gurus, no, no longer here anymore, but he had a quote, and I think it goes something like, seek first to understand and then to be understood. And that's what... Senator Sanders was able to do. Now he if you were talking BS, he he wasn't having it. Now he would, you know, say, No, 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 I disagree with you on that. I mean, he wouldn't just let you say something or get something off and and not correct it if it was glaringly wrong. But what he was able to do in that town hall, I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. He had them cheering. Fox was even shocked. I mean, people were in there. Yeah. Hell yeah, we need Medicare for all. You know, I mean, they were, they, he had turned that entire space around. Why? Because he spoke to the needs of the people. He didn't talk over them. He didn't talk under them. He didn't talk about them. He talked with them and he tapped into their needs. Yeah. That's the difference. And, and, and listen, he he would have beat Donald Trump in my opinion. Yeah, now, I mean easily. that. Yeah, I do. So. No, he would have he would have easily done it. He, uh, you know, he spoke to what people needed. And I know a few people who have Republican relatives after they watched Bernie, they're like, oh, I like what he has to say. People mm-hmm. don't understand that right. they that even there's a big chunk of Republicans out there just want stuff. They just need their material needs taken care of, and that's something Democrats can't comprehend. And it's like you would. If you did Medicare for all, you would you would control the House of Representatives for 50 to 100 years. That's right. Easily. Exactly right. Yeah. He held himself out as the, uh, the anti-Washington. Yes. And at the end of the campaign, for about three or four weeks, 
he showed something that he hadn't shown before, discipline. And he would stand up at these rallies and mock his staff. So they've told me to stay on the script, Donald, and mock him. But he stayed on the script. And so at the end of the election, by a very thin margin in three states, he convinced just enough people to give him an electoral college majority based on one thing and one thing only. I am the candidate of change. That doesn't explain why 90% or so of Republicans currently uh, have a favorable opinion of the job that he's doing, even though he is abrogating some fundamental principles uh, that the Republican Party has stood for. Well, look, I, I, I think that's understandable. We're in a tribal moment. Yeah. Just as President okay. Obama had very high approval ratings from Democrats when you know, he did things that were, quote, undemocratic, like getting a free trade agreement with Korea and Colombia and Panama passed on his watch. So are, you know, we, if you attack a Democrat, but there's a Democrat president right now and the Republicans attack him, Democrats will rally to his side. If a Republican president is attacked by the media or by Democrats, Republicans will rally to his side. I think it is a sign of the disruption of American politics that we have chosen ourselves as members of a tribe and have and are unconcerned, largely unconcerned with principles. You're right, Donald Trump, remember, this is a guy who in 2006 gave his largest political contributions of his entire life until he ran for president to elect Nancy Pelosi speaker and called for the impeachment of George W. Bush in 2007. I mean, <laughs> God damn it, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> Is it worse? It feels worse in my lifetime. That degree, you know, it's it's uh, God, it gets exhausting. It's like I know so many liberals who love to. They're always they're always talking about uh, the Handmaid's Tale. We're living in the Handmaid's Tale. We're about to live in the Handmaid's Tale. It's like okay, I don't actually think that's the the correct analogy. I think the work of literature we're living in right now is the emperor has no clothes, and it doesn't feel like it's just Republicans. It's like literally. We just saw it. Joe Biden can go out and he can just shove all these union workers just under the wheels of a bus. And I know so many Democrats who find a way in their mind to go, yay, yay, Joe, Democrats just saved the country. And you're like, your emperor is walking down Main Street naked. Donald Trump said it. Like he could go down Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and they'd still support him. And he was right. But That's right. it's also true on the Democratic side. No, it is. I, they, I feel like that's gotten worse in my lifetime. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. I think it's gotten way worse. Well, they, they went from, um, lying and trying to hide it mm. to just doing it and not caring. Like there yeah. was definitely a shift. And I think that came after Citizens United. They get so much money now. They just think, well, mm. this will be fine. We've got all the cash. But I, there are moments like this with the railroad strike that I, I, I think they wildly underestimate because they view it as any other issue. And it's not. Rose, not either. Like, there are issues that they, they just don't comprehend the magnitude of. But I love the idea that these episodes could drop. And, like, by the time they've dropped, Joe Biden has just, like, ripped off his jacket and revealed himself to be the strong union man we always wanted him to be. And he has just shoved that deal down that we're all living in this workers' paradise when these episodes drop. Um, I'll be so happy to be wrong. <laughs> it's not going to happen, folks. And yet he is able to have this extraordinary support among Republicans. And why? Because he is the Republican who holds the White House. But one of the things that worries me, Carl, is that we have a system that is set up to prevent a tyranny of the majority. 
uh, tyranny of uh, the big industrial states over the rural states. Uh, and what we have now uh, is a kind of a tyranny of the minority. You have uh, a president who got three million votes less than his uh, opponent. You have a Senate. That I'm with him, and then he goes there. That's not the problem. I mean, it is a problem. But it's like the tyranny of the majority, and then he goes to... Donald Trump winning with less than uh, it's it's not about votes it's it's about it's about the people who have access to the people who get the exactly votes. that's what I was thinking too like what is he talking about the tyranny of the, of the minority is the donor class yeah 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 it's not the electoral college and I Come hate on. the electoral college I yeah. hate the electoral college <clears throat> but but that's where I'm waiting for him. It almost sounds like he's going somewhere sane, and then he just goes there. You know he's not going to start talking about money. That represents less than, in terms of population, less than a majority of the country, and the same is true uh, of the House. And they're making decisions that don't necessarily reflect a majority view in the country, and so it, it lends uh, some uh, momentum to the idea that... I mean, for him to say making decisions that does not reflect... The, the majority view that's happening under a democratic president. It happened under president Obama too. What are you talking about? Most of the time, the decisions are made to the opposite of what the majority of the people want. The majority of the people right now want government to play a deeper role. Just giving some examples within healthcare, Medicare for all. Hello. Maybe the pandemic will do that to you. The majority of the people have turned and, and opinions have changed about the legalization and decriminalization of cannabis. So the majority of the people don't want to see Congress be able to trade stocks. But is any of that happening? Hell no. The majority of the people did not want to see the child tax credit go away. So what kind of la-la land is he living in? Yeah. Yeah. I tell you, they just, they really, like, the main point that drives home is they don't, they, they don't live in the real world. Like, he they just don't. has no, they have no clue what's happening. It's really amazing. And it's, it and is. it's depressing because we're at this point now where it's, like, this is a completely non-functional government that is just, this is almost like a king and queen overruling, uh, ruling over a, a land and they don't give a shit what's happening with the peasants. I mean, it's really atrocious. And how many studies have come out that said we don't live in a democracy? You know, it's yeah. just, it's terrible. And here they are just really going is. through the motions. Yep. And I mean, to act like all of the world's problems came tumbling down because Donald J. Trump got into office, nothing can be further from the truth. This man illuminated yeah. what was already there. And see, this is the problem. We, we see ourselves as we are under Trump. And, and, and people don't like it, especially the neoliberals. They don't like it. Yeah. Because they're right there with them. They the same side. They just a different side of the same coin. They're more palatable when they screw over the people. Yeah. Whereas Trump it's is a, not the, as palatable. The, the Republicans always do this thing. I mean, sometimes it's a complete joke, but they do that post-mortem after, after elections. I think they even yes. do it after they win. I remember they did one after they lost uh, uh, to Obama the second time. And I remember they came up with all these conclusions that four years later, Trump just went the exact opposite direction. It was kind of hilarious. Mm. Um, you know, they were going to be softer and gentler and, you know, uh, reach hilarious. out to minorities more. And all. Whatever. But the fact that they did it, 
was what mattered. And I, I don't see Democrats doing that. I don't see Democrats losing an election. I see them coming out of these midterms where we're like, oh, you didn't lose as badly as you thought you would. That's not a victory. And they don't come out of these things and do these postmortems. They don't try to figure out what no. the problem is. And I guess it's because for them, there's not really a problem, right? It doesn't matter if they really win or lose as long as they keep their jobs, as long as they keep their the, exactly the other party. Right. That's, uh, that's they get it. into media next. This is some fun stuff. We have been a deeply divided country uh, from the very beginning. But what we haven't had are uh, districts that are so thoroughly gerrymandered that the only thing a candidate ever has to worry about is winning a primary and talking to the most strident voices in their own party. What we haven't had is a media environment in which you can construct these virtual reality silos where uh, you only have your point of view affirmed and not uh, informed. Uh, and in which everyone who lives outside that silo is considered alien. Uh, these things have created a, a, an environment that is very, very difficult. We're more polarized now than we have been in perhaps uh, ever uh, in our politics. And um, I don't think at the end of the day that's healthy for the country. It, that's not true, it's historically not true. It's, speaking. It's so, uh, yeah, it's part of our country. It, all this stuff that people want to act like is new is old. It's just we haven't fixed anything. Like people used to get beaten up going to polls, or they'd have they'd have gang members there, you know, from these crazy old gangs in like Baltimore and New York, and or they would have uh, they'd find a like a hobo type guy and have him vote six times. Like this is all stuff <laughs> that's been going on forever. We've been gerrymandering forever. Like what are you talking about? Yeah, people would lose their jobs or be called in and threatened. You know, you yeah. need to vote a certain way or polling places would be closed so black people couldn't go vote because all the white people voted early or they voted at night. So, yeah, none of this stuff in this country is new. What is new is the advent of the World Wide Web, you know, that didn't exist 60 years ago. What is newer is the 24-hour news cycle and the vehicles of social media so that the awareness that these things are going on, it hits people a lot sooner than it did 50 or 60 years ago. That is what's new. But Dave, you're absolutely right. The machinations of None of that is new. This has always been, and this is part of the problem. It's human. It's part of the human condition. This thing called politics and how people navigate that politics, and it can be navigated and has been and continues to be, unfortunately, in some of the most vile ways possible. But I don't. I don't know how this benefits them to act oblivious to these truths i mean we're just saying well, he's, also, he's talking about a brief period i think he's talking about you know again he grew up at this time where yeah. he was five and he saw jfk where there were like three major news networks sure and you know previous to that it had been radio and and newsprint and talk about siloed i mean you know the heyday of newspapers like any any major city had dozens of newspapers each of which fed a completely different constituency yeah. Uh, each of which told its readers to varying degrees that people in those other constituencies were all lunatics and you know had to be That's destroyed. Right. And there was just a few years where we had TV network news where it was just three sources all kind of giving us the same. That's right. And that went off at midnight or something. You know, I know I'm dating myself yeah. now, but when I was a kid, <laughs> that that 
you know, it was annoying sound, mm-hmm. and all the stations were off, baby. But, but, but that's right. Remember, then you had the the, uh, the the Indian in the circle, and the, yes, and the play that's the music right. all night. That's right. Yeah, the people don't really have no idea what it used to be like to get information back then. If you if you thought the mainstream news was garbage, I mean, during the Iraq, during the first uh, uh, the Desert Storm War, um, I was in the protest movement. We would like photocopy stuff out of books and hand it to each other, and you'd take it home and read it. Like that's how you were getting information about what was really going on. Uh, so you know, it, it's. The mainstream news used to keep everybody in the dark, and it's much more open now. Yeah, I'm yeah. actually amazed. I think back, I can't remember how we managed to stay informed before that <laughs> all is this true. stuff. Uh, we mean, did. We would give each other. We would hand each other stuff. Like yeah, oh, I mean, there was that this. kind and of. Then, there was, and there were magazines. There were some magazines out there. Yeah, that, I mean, the nation. I mean, this is the crazy thing. In my day, it was like I remember as a kid, uh, uh, my my parents always kept the Nation and Mother Jones in the bathroom. Mother Jones, and there was one called Z Magazine, I think. That's right, yeah, that came later. Yep. But, I mean, and the crazy thing is Mother Jones was like a radical lefty. I mean, yep. you take a look at it now and it's just... Uh, oh, God, it's... it's know. Oh, my God, Mother Jones... They're still writing articles about how Hillary got shafted by... Yeah. The, uh, Mother, Mother Jones, Jones was rolling over. Mother Jones would kick in the door and be like, that's, what? You that's yeah, Hillary. exactly. <laughs> yes, that's it. Yes, she would. Somebody just gave my kid a, a kid's book on, on Mother Jones, and I was like, i got to read it to make sure this has nothing to do with, like, uh, is, it, is it a story about the real Mother Jones or the actual yeah. people of the magazine get their hands on this? Because she oh, was God. fierce. Yeah. Do you all remember the story? Uh, she said something like she asked, uh, one, one day she asked a man why he was in jail, and he said because he stole a pair of shoes, and she said, had you, stole, had you stolen a railroad, you'd be a senator. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> a U.S. senator. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. Let's get into some last bits of advice from our our buddies. The president's weakness is that he's focused on his base. No. By the way, should we mention this is recorded in 2018. So when they're talking about the president, they're talking about Trump. Nobody wins in American politics by focusing on their base and base only. Except if you are in the best Republican parts of Alabama or the best Democratic, you're in San Francisco and you're Nancy Pelosi. Then you need to, then all you need to worry about is the base. But in most states and in most contests, and certainly when you run for president, you cannot sustain either your majorities in Congress or yourself in the White House by focusing on the base only. The interesting question is what about independent voters in this equation? Is that true though? It seems to make sense when I think about Trump. And it's like, I don't think Trump lost in 2020 because he was just focused on his base. I mean, I think he came perilously close to winning, and I think he lost because of COVID. But I can't think of a president who did more to just play to his base during his administration. And yeah. that seemed to be working. Even yeah. if it yeah, failed, I, it didn't fail as catastrophically as Carl said it would. That's right. I think he would have. Uh, I think Trump would have won if it wasn't for COVID. I, I'm, I agree, unfortunately. Yes. I'm, I'm going to say something that's blasphemous on this show. I don't think I've said this yet, but Carl Rove is wrong here. <laughs> and if you uh, are alienating independent voters, and I think that independent group includes some Republicans who are currently identifying themselves as, in the, as independents because they don't want to be identified with the president. If he can't make inroads with that group, if he continually goes back to the base, he is going to have a hard time. You and I became active in politics when anywhere from a quarter to a third of the electorate were true independents who were ticket splitters, who, 
who we were, we were at a moment there where the old party alignments were declining. And as a result, there were a lot of people who were today, 2012 election, it got down to what, 7%? Yeah. Slightly increased uh, true independence in the presidential race, slightly increased in 2016, but I think more because people were sort of transitioning out of a party rather than really becoming a, quote, true independent. And as a result, there's not much pliability in the electorate. And good politicians will respond to that by saying, I need to focus even more on the swing voters. Not so good politicians will say, I'm going to respond to that by stoking up my base even more. The fuck are these guys saying the same thing? Yes, the thing the Democrats are always saying is we have to go for these these swing votes in the center. Yeah, and they're wrong. Yeah, yeah they're completely right? wrong. Uh, you go, but Trump proved that Trump went everywhere where Trump went. The registrations went up massively uh, in the primaries. He was bringing people who hadn't voted in twenty years back into voting. Um, that's what a, a very left candidate would do. Exact same thing. Tons of people who haven't voted for decades would sign up to vote. But they focus on the center because that's, you know, that's that's where the money is. That's where they they can just run things and screw everybody over. And also, there aren't that many Democrats and Republicans. Like, what are they talking about? Like, twenty five percent of the population is is Republicans. Thirty five percent of the population is Democrats. What are you talking about? What do you guys know? What math is? <laughs> like, there's a massive Page percentage of people Yang. out there. <laughs> the math. Yeah, it's just, it's just, you'd hear this shit and you're like, what are you talking about? It's just not reality. But all the Democrats, they're nodding their head, they go, yeah, there's not that many people out there. Yes, there are. You've eliminated them because you do nothing for them. Give them a reason to vote for you and they will vote for you. That's right. Yeah, Nina, do you, do you think, I mean, again, you spend, you've spent time around these people, I know, not a lot and not a lot of pleasant social time, but do you think they're aware of how many people don't vote who are out there who could be brought back in to vote? They just write them all off. No, they do write them off because, I mean, I hate to say this, when you are an incumbent, unless you are very conscious-minded and you care very much about the robustness of the representative democracy that we have and you want people to vote, you really don't want as many people to vote. I mean, you just mm -hmm. want the people, you, you want it to be a narrow base of people voting. So no, they don't care that those people are not voting because the advantage is to only have as many people as you already know are going to vote for you and you want to eliminate the wild cards and, and some of the people who have not been voting because they feel they're displaced, they're disillusioned, rightfully so, about the system. No, you don't want them to vote. A lot of incumbents like low voter turnout. So you heard it. I mean, hope I don't know if the people listening to us are only hearing this for the first time, but it is it's true. It's rotten, but it's true. And then another part to that, yeah, well, they don't care. I, I mean, they really, and I'm not saying that to be harsh. They they just don't care. The type of world that they live in, they they don't care, because the people that need like government to work the most are more likely the people who will get so frustrated with it and they don't have a whole lot of time to pontificate or to watch master class because they work in five jobs. So they're not going to vote. Do you think they're going to go into the hoods where these people are misunderstood? And when I say hoods, I mean that very globally. I mean urban hoods, rural hoods, suburban oh, hoods, 
where Big Mama and Big Papa and everybody that lives in their community have been left behind. No, they're not going to get those people. They don't want them to vote. No, they don't, because that, that means massive change. They don't want massive change. Not at all. No, no. No, they don't want them to vote. They want the we can I go back rather... to brunch crowd to vote. Yeah. How stupid is that? So Trump is not in office, and we can go back to goddamn brunch. Well, there's a whole <laughs> bunch of people in this country, about 140 million of them, who can't go to damn brunch. Yeah. Here's my question. I'd rather spend the last few minutes we have addressing this than these two clowns winding down because I think we've sort of gotten as much juice from them as we can. How, how do you, I mean, you've worked campaigns where you've, where you've attempted and succeeded to some extent doing this, but how, there are that many people out there. How does, how does anyone reach them? How do we reach them? How does a campaign mount a big enough insurgency against these two parties that are both vested yeah. to a great degree in keeping people from voting? And how do you how do you get those people to vote? I mean, we, we saw we saw Bernie make incredible headways. Um, we've seen local elections. Yeah. I mean, is it just focusing on local, or do you think there's hope for like someone to run a presidential campaign as an insurgency again in this country? I, I think it is. Time? I mean, our campaign came very close both times. COVID, you know, not only did COVID impact Trump, it impacted our ability to to compete as robustly in 2020 but when we go back to even just 2016 is really getting getting into the hearts of the people before you try to get into their head like people have to feel something first before then you can start to talk to them um, from a cerebral point of view and so there's nothing extraordinarily new that I'm about to say here other than it's the human touch it's did I touch you in your heart so then eventually you'll feel it in your head. And to do that, I have to be out there where you are. Now, the the the, the arena has changed in that the the courtyard is, is, vir- is both virtual and in the physical streets, like the public square, if you will. We have two public squares. We do have the physical public square, and we also have the virtual public square, and we need candidate who can navigate both of those, but definitely social media can never, ever take the place of good old fashioned. I see you. I feel your vibe. I hear you. And that's what we were able to do very successfully in both 2016 and 2020. No other candidate got the types of crowds that we did on the Democratic side. Trump got it on the Republican side. Why? Because it was the same energy used for different purposes. Do you think, I mean, I also thought it was really interesting, too, the, the, the split in the black community fascinated me. And, and no one, you know, you'll never see liberals really talk about this seriously because they're very uncomfortable saying anything that could possibly be considered as critical of, of you know, the African-American community. And this is not critical. It's just a fact, like, older African-Americans are more conservative. Yeah. And one of the things I saw a lot of and even had conversations, and it, it makes perfect sense, is... You know, why, why are they all going for Joe Biden? It's like you're, you're talking about a, a group that has been a, um, particular on the receiving end of, of his awfulness over the years. Why are they going for that? And there was, at least it seemed to me in, in a lot of stuff that I heard, there was a, at least a thread throughout some people in that community that was like, yeah, we know. And we, we know that that's how it goes. We don't expect, 
when someone comes along who's actually telling us they're going to do good and they're new and they're, they're pushing something that sounds actually better, not just the same old thing, we are suspicious because we have heard it so many times before and Joe Biden's the best we're going to get because we've seen it before and we'd rather go with him than Donald Trump who literally hangs out with Nazis and Klansmen and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it's cynicism. It's well-earned cynicism. You can't, you can't argue with, with their conclusions really or how they've gotten to that place. But how do you, do you think there's a way to confront that or do we simply just wait for older voters to kind of, forgive my bluntness, just sort of die off and, and trust that younger voters aren't going to be as cynical? Yeah, you mean wait for Mother Nature to do what Mother Nature does yeah. for all of us. I, I don't think... Yeah, we, I mean, how do you... We can't afford to wait. We, we just yeah. cannot afford to wait. For me, I, I believe it is reminding the black community combined. So both elders and then your point about the youth and where they see that is why senator sanders was able to command so much of the youth vote across racial identity yeah. is because the vision that he had for the future and they understood that that vision was going to impact them for the longest time but let me go back to more seasoned black people i believe that we got to tap in first acknowledge the conservatism within the black community white neoliberals refuse to acknowledge the conservative, you might not like it, but that's just how it is. And you can understand historically why black people have had to be very conservative because of the types of things that the black community, I'm generally speaking, had to endure. So don't act as though you don't understand that. That's number one. Number two is for people like me and other black leaders who are on the freedom fighting progressive left, is to remind black people, the whole, everybody, seasoned, in the middle, and the youngest from whence we came. If you think about it, and I've said this on the campaign trail, whether I'm in front of white audiences or black audiences or the Rainbow Coalition, is that black people are the, we're the genesis of progressivism. And, and what I mean by that is that it doesn't get more progressive than fighting for your very liberation. Meaning that if black people go back to the root and the heart of the matter towards our, as it relates to our experience, our cultural generational experience in this country, our ancestors as a whole could not afford to go with the status quo because we still be in chains. We didn't accept the status quo, which is why we got free, air quotes. We didn't accept the status quo, which is how we got the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And, and those are just, I, I mean, I can give many, many other examples. So black folks have never accepted the status quo. So why should we accept it right now? Yeah. The status quo kills. It kills. Yeah. Mind, body, spirit. It kills. Yeah, I, I guess just the fear that, you know, shaking up the status quo kills more seems to be. Yeah, because you know what? Because we've been brainwashing and you got all these black gatekeepers like Jim Clyburn. You got all these dream killers because they benefit. But they don't care if Big Mama and Big Papa's kids benefit as long as they benefit. So they go to black people and say, what's better than what we got here? You know, Malcolm X, that, that speech that he gave up the difference between the, 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 the house the, the, the field enslaved person and the house enslaved person, even though 
I disagree with his analysis slightly, but I understood where he was coming from. But, you know, when he said, what's better than what we got here? See, that's what neoliberal black people go into the black community and say, what's better than what we have here? See, the thing, the difference between 2016 and 2020, there were many of them, but I'm going to make this point and just, and, and is that when the pressure, when, when in the face of a Trump, let's just use it what it is, black community in particular was convinced that dreaming too big and reaching too high was not what was going to get rid of Trump. We got to be reasonable. We got to be practical. Remember, you heard that a whole lot on the, you got to be oh, practical. Oh, white, white liberals went for that too. That's, yeah. So that's what change. it was. So so now I can't dream no, no further than being practical. And what was practical in the moment, according to the neoliberal power structure, is beating Trump. Damn it, if you got to work five jobs, it don't matter. Beat Trump. If you don't have universal health care, it don't matter. Beat Trump. That's all that matters. So they were dream killers. Those people were dream killers. It's that term that Dave and I both love from, from the West Wing, practical idealism. Mm. Um, the two does not but, go together. <laughs> yeah, and, and, but, but it's interesting how, how the you know, two, two different communities in the Democratic Party are both sort of suffering from versions of the same thing. And then certainly uh, um, what the... the older black communities conservatism is used by white liberals to justify their conservatism. There it is. And that's, that's exactly with, right. without taking the time to interrogate why that community feels the way it does. And so you end up in situations where, yeah, if you're critical of Jim Clyburn, you're, you know, did he, I don't know, it's, if it's not him, it's, you're, you're, you're like, oh, you know, he marched with Martin Luther King. I'm like, I don't know, maybe he did. That, I, that was before I was born, man. Do you think? Do you think Martin Luther People King changed. would have wanted him to take a, a, a millions of dollars from pharmaceutical companies? Hello, Dave. There yeah, it but, is. But, 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 Dave, you, that, that's you're, you're not allowed to say that. You're just not. And it's it's it's. I mean, but it really is. It's this sort of like bulletproof vest that that white liberals wear, and um, I, I just feels to me like the way to to knock them down and get them to wake up and think is to reach that older black community i don't know i mean the black community we're gonna have to have a family meeting i mean i say that too at some point the black community cannot continue to be complicit in its demise in our own demise at some point we have got to come together and say this right here is not working that we understand the overtness of uh, racism or, or, or even I'll just, just neo-fascism on the Republican side. Got it. Check. But what about the other side too? We don't have to accept, we don't have to continuously accept the lesser of the two evils. And that is what we all, not just black people have been convinced of the American people, the fighting spirit of the American people has been stripped away and we've been lulled into this acceptance of the lesser of the two evils. Take what just happened to the rail workers. In another country, people would be taken to the streets right now. Not in this country. We make excuses for why some of the most powerful people on the planet couldn't deliver seven lousy sick time days to people who are literally dying 
physically and, and mentally. so important that if they stop working, our economy is going to crash and burn. Come on. Forget compassion. You don't want to be compassionate? Great, don't. How about acknowledge how important these people That's are? That's it. And if they so essential, which they are, then give them what they want. Why do they have to make the sacrifice and the other side doesn't have to sacrifice a damn thing? In another country, people would be in the streets right now. So it's not just the black community. I just want to put that. It's not just the oh, black 100%. community. 100%. Yeah, I, I hope I was clear. Yeah. No, I, you I, were. I, I, I like did, but I just want to list. I mean, because black yeah. people overwhelmingly, I mean, we, we say we're not a monolith. We're not homogeneous here. But when it comes to voting, uh, we are. Over 90% of Democrats get our votes. So I understand where you were coming from, Josh. But I'm hoping that everybody, no matter what walk of life they are from, no matter how they identify, if they have a working class uh lens if they if they care about the least of these first that they understand that we are on a collision course in this country and it's not about who's left or right it is about right and wrong it is about ultra wealthy against the 98 percent of us all of us that's what this is about yep was it what, oh my god what was the uh uh I hate to go out talking about her, but there was that uh, Hillary had that line where she just scoffed at Bernie. Remember, where it was like he thinks breaking up the banks is going to cure racism. <laughs> yeah, man, it it wouldn't cure help. racism, but if you broke up Wells Fargo uh, when Obama was president, it could have done a lot less fucking harm to to black homeowners and the to people who were yeah. absolutely fucking savaged Decimate, by those yes. companies it could <laughs> not could it have cured racism no but it could have helped a lot of people come on Jesus. black people lost 50 percent of their wealth during that great recession 50 yeah. percent because they were they were targeted by the banks the ones that they let get away with it all mm -hmm. they were targeted yes. that's right would it have stopped racism? Man, the shit that comes out of that woman's mouth. I mean, how anybody saw her as a good candidate is absolutely amazing. Amazing. When she stood on that stage and said, what we need to do for student loans is reduce the uh, interest rates like 1%, my head almost exploded. Mm. What do you, she yeah. has just no, not even slightly in touch with reality doesn't care just sits there and says stuff those people the neoliberalism is a disease and it's killing us it is I, you know i often say neo-fascism will kill us quick kills us quickly and yeah. neoliberalism kills us slowly but the yeah. dead is dead yeah. you know i had an elder she would always say it doesn't matter if you meant to kill me on purpose or by accident dead yes. is dead yeah and, and that's what we're dealing Ugh. with right now well, that's the same thing with climate change is the difference between the Democrats uh, and the Republicans is uh, the Republicans raise the sea level 25 feet and Democrats raise it 20 feet. <laughs> Hello. So congratulations. You're still underwater. There it is. Uh, well, um, geez. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not partying with you two anymore because I always leave the party more depressed than when I came in. I thought a party was supposed to know, cheer you up. There, there, there was one a couple weeks ago where we actually we all left. We were all revved up. You got us all fired up. Yeah, yeah. God damn it. We are, well, the we conclusion are, one's are, always going to be a bummer because you had these two idiots talking and you just... 
like these guys are the problem. If we had someone actually in this in this space next to them who was like, "Here's what I would do," like, you know, yeah. a different animal. But you know, what are you supposed to say to these? What are you supposed to say about what they've just said? Like, it's just it's just bananas. Yeah, and we we are the, we are the people who sit through all of it and. If you brought me Find here to torture we me, you were successful. I mean, <laughs> we did. <laughs> and I thought you loved me. God. I mean, on the first episode, you said such beautiful. This is what we do. This is how we show our love. <laughs> love hurts. Our love is our love is pain. <laughs> <laughs> Senator Nina Turner, we are so knocked out that you did this we are so amazed you, you you showed us something i think we knew you had but now we really know you had by making it all the way through this i mean uh yeah. you should do it you should uh talk about resilience you should do it you should do a master class in resilience oh yeah no definitely i would love to but, do that but, <laughs> but no thank you for doing this this has been absolutely amazing um where 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 are you people want to as, as though anyone who listens to us doesn't know where they can find you but you've, you've got a new show now you're where where do we go to for more yeah well i really enjoyed being with you and dave it has been a rip-roaring experience i mean if you got to you know take on misery it's good to take it on with some people you respect so i appreciate you both people can find me on uh that thing still called twitter for now at nina turner i'm on facebook at nina turner instagram at nina turner and as far as the show the new show that debuted on october the 17th on the tyt network the young turks network they can find me monday through friday and all they have to do is type in into YouTube, unbossed Nina Turner, and it will pop right up. No fancy uh, URLs or anything like that. Just go to YouTube, Nina Turner, unbossed, and please subscribe. I need to get my subscribers up, and I need you. And it's free to subscribe. And then, and then one question you don't have to answer because I know this is always a weird thing to ask politicians. They're so, they're all so loaded. But are you running for office again? Mm. Are we? Uh... I don't know, Judge. I get that question all the time, and this is, I honestly don't know, but I will tell you I am very heartened by the fact that so many people do want me to run again, that they see my service in in the public sphere in that way through elected office, being actively elected again, I call it. They still want to see me do that, and, and I hold that as a high honor. I'm not sure if I will do it again or not. Uh, most likely I would not run for Congress again. And so, you know, the next step beyond that would be the U.S. Senate or uh, another high, the high, highest office, right? I mean, it's only yes. a few choices left. Well, if you need a couple of, uh, of uh, uh, angry, beaten down, middle-aged white screenwriters <laughs> to do something on your... Uh... <laughs> You're not beating down. You're not beating down. Uh, uh, oh, we're getting there. We're thank getting there. Nina Turner, thank you so much. This has been incredibly educational. And uh, uh, we'll be taking another little break before we're back with our next audit. But um, we're going to do everything we can to make sure it comes close, at least, to living up to the standards we've set with this one. So thank you for listening to us. Baby, I know you got your thing for campaign strategies. And I do too And I know your head is full of questions But I got friends Who can give all the answers to you Oh yeah We got Q
support team uh brian siano our free floating agent of chaos aka research guy and also colin mccoy who does all of our music you can also find him he out there in music world he is known as diesel boots 